Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I'm sure it's very familiar to a lot of you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Thank you, Sue. Children ages three to second grade, you're dismissed to children's church. <laughs> We're in Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 16, so that's the whole chapter. <clears throat> As we continue our study through the book of Genesis, you know, the, the main theme is origins, and we're up to, to Terah's line. We're still in that part because it's uh, all about Abraham as well. <clears throat> and so as we look at this passage of Scripture today, I entitled it Synergism. And you're like, what in the world is that? What is synergism? So we're going to define it a little bit. Theologians define it as to attempt to independently help God accomplish his purpose. That's with theologians. Now, synergy has the basic meaning of working together, teamwork, and harmony. And, and the opposite of synergy is discord, divorce, and separation. <clears throat> now, what um, St. Augustine says is this. Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or um, ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in him. So synergism is this concept of, you know, trying to do things on our own, trying to help God out, right, <clears throat> with his plan and his purposes for our lives. And so I know that I've tried to help God out, quote, unquote, help God out with his plans in the past, whether it's been in my own life or in the life of my children or others. You know, it's like, I just need to help you out. If you would just do what I say, everything would be working out all right. But sometimes that's not according to God's plan, right? And then we get into all kinds of problems. I want us to think about that this morning, how many of us have tried to help God out with his plan and purpose. Perhaps it was something in your own life, you know, where you were like, I can help God out with this. You know, I, we can get, get, get this going a little quicker. <clears throat> I know for me, some people have said, well, I would have, I would have done things uh, more rapidly than you've done them. But I'm always, I'm always waiting for buy-in. And when we get that, then we, we're able to move forward without a whole lot of problems. But if I try to get ahead of where God is leading and try to push it in my own strength and in my timetable, I've always found that it's, it's backfired on me. And so maybe you've done, experienced that. Sometimes it's with our children's lives where we try to help them out. Other times it's in our, uh, our friends' or coworkers' lives. <clears throat> it could even be in our neighbors' lives. Maybe it's in the life of a student that you're teaching. And so what was the result? I want you to just think about that this morning. In our lives, we may have experienced frustration, anxiety, anger, depression, fear, perhaps other feelings as well. <clears throat> when we try to accomplish this thing on our, in our own strength, ahead of God's timing, and really outside of his plan, and when we try to help others out, we may experience broken relationships, hurt feelings, anger, frustration, fear, and many more. And so God, as we look at this passage today, God has promised Abram that he will be the father of a great nation. God promised him that an heir would come from his own body. And it's been 10 years since the last time God made that promise, and still Abram and Sarai have not been able to have children. So maybe God needed some help. As Sarai comes up with a plan to, quote-unquote, help God accomplish his promise. 
That's what she's doing. And what we'll learn today from this passage of Scripture is this big idea. God's plan is best for us. We're going to see that in Sarai or Sarai, however you want to say it, and Hagar's life. Both of them, we're going to recognize that God's plan is best for them. And so as we think about that, would you just bow your heads with me as we commit this passage to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you as humble servants today with no words of our own. I have no words, Lord God. I can't do this without you. So I humbly bow before your throne today and ask you to speak. Speak powerfully through your word to your people. That's the only way it can work, Lord God. It's the, only, the only power comes that way because, Lord God, you know each heart and mind that's represented here today. You know exactly what they need to hear and how they need to be challenged, where they need to be encouraged and strengthened. And so, Lord God, would you speak? And so, Lord, we come to you today and we humbly confess before you that there's been times where we have tried to help you out and we've made a mess of it. So would you forgive us? Would we wait patiently upon you? And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at verse 1, this is really the introduction. This verse uh, introduces us to three people who are part of this narrative. So let's look at that verse this morning. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So there's the three uh, <clears throat> people or individuals that are part of this narrative. We see that it's Abram, it's Sarai, the wife of Abram, and it's Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant of Sarai. Now, the titles used are important and significant. Sarai is always identified as Abram's wife. No other identifying title for her than, than wife of Abram. And this designation, as Walt, he says, of Sarah emphasizes her rightful standing. The promised son should come from her. She is Abram's wife. <clears throat> that was God's plan for Abram and Sarai. And so God's plan was going to be uh, best for them as it is for us. Now, Hagar is primarily identified as the maidservant or servant to Sarai. There's one time in this passage of Scripture where you see her identified as a wife to Abram. It's only that one time. Every other time, um, it's talking about her being a maidservant or a servant. And the fact that she is identified as an Egyptian is also important. You know, she came to be part of this family in one of two ways. Either um, uh, Abram acquired her while he was living in Egypt. Remember when he went down to Egypt? and then, uh, Or it could have been because of the dowry that was received um, from the from the Pharaoh when he took Sarah as his wife, right? Because Abram had said, tell him that you're my sister, not my wife, which was partially true. It was his half-sister. But, so it came one of those two ways, and so perhaps uh, um, Hagar came as just one of the maidservants that Pharaoh had given to Sarai to kind of wait on her and take care of her. <clears throat> So it's also likely that Hagar was the personal maidservant to Saulrai. She took care of Saulrai's every need. She was not a slave, but probably had a very important position within, Abram, within Abram's family. 
Eleazar was perhaps Abram's personal manservant, which is why Abram has chosen him as his heir, as we saw several weeks ago. You know, as Abram's talking to God, he's saying, God, um, since you haven't provided an heir, I, I, you know, Eleazar, my slave or my servant, he'll be the heir. And God's like, no, 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 there's going to be an heir coming from your body. So these two uh, servants are very close. They have a close relationship with Abram and Sarai. This isn't just someone who's out there randomly um, that they're choosing. And so this sets the stage for the rest of the narrative. And what we see in verses 2 to 6 is Sarai's plan. She has a plan, and then in a little bit we'll see uh, Hagar's plan as well. But look at verses 2 to 6. Um, and before I read it, I want to explain uh, these verses a little bit to you. In, in verses 2 to 6, we have a parallel chiastic structure. So what we're going to see here is we'll see in verses 2a and 5 that Sarai complains about her state, the state that she's in. So you're going to see her complain in verse 2a, and then she's going to complain again in verse 5. Then in verses 2b and 6a, we'll see how Abram complies with Sarai's interests. So there's this compliance. So we have complaint, compliance, and then conduct is the third one. Finally, in verses 3 to 4 and verse 6b, we'll see how Sarai tries to resolve her complaints. And we see her conduct in that. And so as we think about verses 2 to 4, the very first uh, um, structure or parallel structure, uh, I just entitled it barren. It's two to four. So let's look at those verses. This is what God's word says. So she, that's Sarai, said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. That's the only time that Uh, Hagar has mentioned his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And so what we see here is, Sarai complains about the fact that the Lord has kept her from having children. This is her complaint. Sarai and Abraham have been in Canaan for 10 years. Sarai is now about 75 uh, years old. She recognizes that God is the creator of life, because she's like, God's the one who's not allowed me to have children. But she is probably struggling with the cultural stigma of being barren. This was huge in, in this first uh, in the near, ancient Near East culture. To not be able to have children was significant. It, that was important. Matthew says this, that barrenness was grounds for divorce after a 10-year period is a rabbinic explanation for Sarai's actions. So she's trying to help God out because she's like, I'm coming up on these 10 years uh, of God making this promise and I still haven't had this child. And what if, what if Abram just puts me away? He just sets me aside and, and, and finds someone else. And so she recognizes that um, although Sarai and Abram have been married for much longer than 10 years, it's been 10 years, like I said, since the Lord reaffirmed his promise that Abram would be a great nation and that an heir would come from his own body. And Walton in his commentary uh, quotes Van, Van der Torm, who summarizes well what Sarai was probably feeling. This woman who remained childless not only ran the risk of being disdained or worse, repudiated by her husband and in-laws, she also incurred the suspicion of indecent behavior. The gods surely uh, had to have their reasons for withholding children. Consequently, we may safely assume that newly wed, who, as time elapsed, perceived no signals pointing to pregnancy, was overcome by panic. Her fear undoubtedly doubled her piety. So she's fearful, and it's like, 
that's why she's trying to get ahead of God at this point, because she's like, oh, we, uh, maybe I can have a family through Hagar. I can build my family through her. And Saul, Saul Rise probably dealing with, with fear that Abram will divorce her, so she proactively offers to have Abram sleep with her maidservant, Hagar. And this was common, culturally acceptable practice in the ancient Near East. In Genesis chapter 30, we'll see um, verses 3 to 12, um, Jacob, the story of Jacob, right? And he, he, mar- well, he got tricked into marrying Leah, and then he worked you know, another seven years, and then he married Rachel, this is who he wanted to marry originally, and he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah, but Leah was uh, producing children left and right, and Rachel was not producing any children at all, and so f- eventually Rachel says, hey, here's my maidservant. Again, this is like the personal servant. Here's my maidservant. Maybe I can build my family through my maidservant. So her maidservant starts to have children, and Leah stops having children, and Leah's like, well, that's not good for me. Um, I, I want to stay ahead of my sister in this game, right? And so here's my maidservant, and you can have children through. And so she starts to have children as well. And so, you know, Jacob's got all kinds of wives. He's got all kinds of children. Oh, my goodness. And eventually Rachel has some children. So this was culturally acceptable at the time, but this practice uh, was also written about in multiple extra-biblical texts that we see. But just because it was culturally acceptable did not make it morally right or according to God's plan. And that's important. Matthews reminds us that multiple wives were wrong according to God's will and posed a threat to the stability of a family, and which is sadly illustrated by the strife in Abram's house. Right? God didn't design marriage to, to, to be uh, a plural marriage where there's multiple wives, multiple husbands. That's not how he designed it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, singular, and they will become one flesh. And I think about 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. This is talking about deacons and elders in the church. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Paul reiterates that again in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, as he's writing to Titus, and again he says that the, this overseer, this deacon or elder needs to be the husband of but one wife. And you know, the same is true in our culture today. We have to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of doing something that's culturally acceptable, but not approved by God. You know, so and it's, cre- it's crept into the church. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, it's okay to live together and, and have you know, sex ahead of marriage. It's because we're going to get married anyhow, right? We try to justify these things in our head. And it's okay to, to drink alcohol. And uh, yeah, I know that sometimes I, I drink too much alcohol. And, and then I get drunk. And they're like, no, we, we can't keep justifying these things. There's other things um, that have been legalized um, by our culture that are not right before God. Abortion, same-sex marriage, and many other things. And so, just because they're legalized does not mean that they're acceptable. And then again, whether it's premarital sex or drunkenness or smoking marijuana, I mean, all these things, and there's so much more that have just become culturally acceptable today does not make them biblically and morally acceptable to God or by God. It's like we can't keep justifying those things. But that's what was happening here. Sarai was trying to, quote-unquote, help God out, but it wasn't according to his plan. You see, God's plan is best for us. God's plan was going to be best, 
for Abram and Sarai, and they needed to, they needed to wait upon him and, and, and his timing. And so, just as Sarai was struggling with the cultural stigma of being barren, we sometimes struggle with the cultural stigmas of our day. And so she came up with a plan that she shared with her husband, Abram. And we see here the compliance side of this. Abram agrees to her plan. Notice that Abram did not consult the Lord at this point. Neither had Sarai. This was reminiscent of Adam passively eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at Eve's prompting. And so as head of the household and the spiritual leader, Abram should have consulted the Lord before blindly agreeing to Sarai's suggestion and offer. And you see, it goes back to our big idea that God's plan is always best for us. We see the result of not consulting the Lord and his plan. Sarai gives Hagar to Abram. This is her conduct. Abram slept with Hagar and she conceived. And Hagar's attitude toward Sarai changed when she realized she was pregnant. Sarai and Hagar's relationship had changed. What was once a close relationship between the wife of Abram and her maidservant was now strained. Hagar was taking pride in her pregnancy and perhaps throwing it in Sarai's face. We can just imagine uh, with the attitude change that perhaps Hagar was verbally abusive towards Sarai. Hey, Sarai, I didn't have any trouble getting pregnant by Abram. What's wrong with you? Right? That's Satan just getting in there causing her to doubt God's perfect plan. Like, what's wrong with you? And so her attitude changes, and a rivalry has replaced relationship. And Hagar does not realize that her attitude has placed her on thin ice. She is alienated from Abram and Sarai and God's blessing on them. Like, you're stepping outside of the blessing of God when you're doing this. Like, and we're going to see that when we get to her plan in just a moment. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 21 to 23 tell us this. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes king, a fool who is full of food, an unloved woman who is married, and the final one, a maidservant who displaces her mistress. Like the earth can't stand up under these things. They, it trembles. So you see that in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 21 to 23. How sad to see what happens when we try to, quote-unquote, help God accomplish his plans. And this is how it applies to us today. The first principle is this. Getting ahead of God and his plan causes problems. I want you to think for a moment about the time when you tried to help God accomplish his plan. How did that work for you? How did it work out? What complications um, happened because of getting ahead of God? Was there a strain on a relationship with your spouse or a family member or a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or maybe someone else? Was there a big mess that had to be cleaned up? Perhaps you're still trying to clean that mess up now and restore the relationships. Are you still waiting for God's plan to be accomplished in the situation? The great thing about God is that he is gracious, compassionate, forgiving, slow to become angry, loving, and always there for us. This is a passage of Scripture the Lord just... I uh, had jump off the page uh, last week. It's in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 17b and 18. Nehemiah is re- recalling all the rebellion that the Israelites have done. But then he also highlights God's 
graciousness, his compassion, his loving kindness, the fact that he doesn't, didn't turn his back and walk away from the Israelites. He stood there with them the whole time. This is what it says. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt or when they, or when they committed awful blasphemies. You see, God is able to clean up the mess that, we're, that we've made when we get ahead of him. When we turn to him and confess that before him, he's able to get his plan back on track. Nothing can, can thwart, I can't say the word, thwart, his plans. He get it back on track. And so that takes us to two next steps today I want to encourage you to consider taking. The first one is this. It just confess to the Lord that I've tried to, quote, unquote, help him accomplish his plan and failed. Just, just confess that before him today. Re- recognize it. Lift it up to him. Say, God, I've done it. Yep, and I'm in the middle of it right now, and I need your help. The second next step is this, and that's to admit to the Lord that his plan is best for me and patiently wait for his timing. He's still going to accomplish that plan. We need to be patient, even if we've tried to help him out and we messed it up and we failed. Those two steps will help you get back on track with God's plan. Now, we've seen Saul Rai's first complaint, but now she has a second complaint because of the plan that she suggested to solve the first complaint. Right? Interesting. Her plan did not bring the fulfillment and satisfaction that she had envisioned. She was like, this is going to be great. I'm going to have a family through Hagar. This is going to be amazing. That's not what happened. It wasn't amazing. It only brought heartache and strife. And so verses 5 to 6, which is the second uh, structure, parallel structure, I just called it begrudging. She's jealous. Saulrai complains that Abram is responsible for the suffering that she's experiencing because of the success of her plan. (laughs) Wow. Do this. Okay. Why did you do that? That's how I see it. That's, that's what I think Abram's thinking. He's like, you told me to do this. Why did you listen to me? That's what Sarai's saying. What, what did you listen to me for? You knew it wasn't right. You should have talked to God, right? So what we see here, Walton says, Sarai's accusation against Abram is that, apparently in his delight at becoming a father, he has neglected the necessary steps that would keep Hagar remembering her appropriate place within the household. I think that's important. Poor Abram, he's like over here, like, this yeah, this is great. Hagar is pregnant. Finally, you know, getting somewhere. And, and Sarah's like, what are you doing? What are you celebrating for? This is your fault. You, you listen to me. And this is wrong. And so she's all upset because her plan succeeded. Saulrai is upset that Abram is not confronting Hagar about her attitude and how she was treating Saulrai as the primary wife. That's where it really, the rubber meets the road. She's upset because Abram was abdicating his responsibility. He was shirking that responsibility. Hagar was to be the surrogate through which Saulrai would build a family. She was not supposed to replace Saulrai as the primary wife. But I think that was the attitude that Hagar was having. And so Saulrai appears to the highest court available. She asks the Lord to be the judge and tells Abram, I told God about you, right? I told God about you, and you're in trouble now. I appealed to God. When everything didn't go as she planned, then she appeals to the Lord. Isn't that true for us too? 
we're like, we do this thing and we're thinking it's going to work out great and it doesn't work out great. And then we're like, God, can you help me with this? And he was like, um, yeah, and I could have helped you if you would have asked me before. You got into this big mess. And so this, um, <clears throat> what seem, uh, it seems to fall on deaf ears, though, when she's sharing this with Abram, when she's saying, I've appealed to God about the situation. Abram tells Sarah to handle the problem however she thinks best. This is his compliance again. Again, Abram is delegating his responsibility as the head of the household to Sarai. Uh, we have all heard the phrase, happy wife, happy life. Abram was not experiencing that. He, he was not experiencing that at all. He was experiencing a different reality because he had not consulted the Lord before following Sarai's plan. Instead of accepting his role as head of the household and confronting Hagar, he once again passively passes the buck. Men, we must embrace our God-given responsibilities, responsibility as head of the household and spiritual leader. We are the spiritual leaders in our household. That requires us to seek the Lord's face when conflict arises. It means that we are the ones who lead by example. We're praying together with our family. We're reading God's word together. We're attending church. We're pursuing holiness. We're resolving conflict in a biblical way and so much more. We're standing up. We're the ones that need to lead the way. Our wives shouldn't be saying to us, do you want to go to church today? No. We should be saying, let's go to church today. They shouldn't be saying, would you pray together with me about this, this problem that we're having right now? No, we should be saying, hey, let's get on our knees before the Lord. We should be doing this with our children as well. Grandchildren too. We're in that stage. I love that stage, by the way. We don't delegate that responsibility to anyone else. We don't de delegate it to the pastor. We don't delegate it to the youth pastor. We don't delegate it to the Sunday school teacher. We don't delegate it to our Christian school teacher to do these things with our children. No, that's our responsibility, men. And so my challenge to men today is that third next step, and that's to embrace my God-given responsibility to lead my family biblically. When Abram told Sarai to do with Hagar whatever she thought best, he meant to treat her in a way that was good. Saul Rye was wrong for mistreating Hagar. Here's the reality. Hurt people hurt people. That's a play on words, but... Those who are feeling hurt by others will inevitably lash out at others and hurt them. And most of the times they hurt the ones closest to them, the ones they love. That's what was happening with Saul, Rai, and Hagar. They, were, had a, they had a great relationship. They were close. They probably loved each other. And yet they're hurting each other because they're hurting. Wearsby says instead of... took a different course... And this only made things worse. I think my batteries are gone, so they're, gonna, they're good.
solution was to blame her husband and mistreat her servant as she gave vent to her anger. Abram's solution was to give in to his wife and abdicate spiritual headship in his home. And then Hagar's solution was to run away from the problem, a tactic we all learned from Adam and Eve. They ran away and hid as well. Principle two is this. The first step toward reconciliation with others is getting right with God. That's so key. Like, the reason we can't reconcile with others is, guess what? Most, most likely, most likely we're, bi- we're harboring bitterness. <laughs> and it's the sin that's in our lives. And, like, we got to take care of that. And we got to get right with God. And then we're going to be able to see in a whole different perspective that, uh, that other relationship and how it can be reconciled. And so th- that's the, you know, the first step toward reconciliation. Now we see Hagar's solution in verses 7 to 14. This is Hagar's plan. At the end of verse 6, Hagar has fled from Saul, right, and her abuse. And so we're going to see a couple of S words here. Um, sought is the first one, verses 7 and 8. The Lord, the angel of the Lord is seeking out Hagar as she's fleeing. So look at verses 7 and 8 with me if you would. <clears throat> the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, uh, Hey, uh, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And so we see uh, what's happening here. The angel of the Lord was looking for Hagar, seeking her out. This is principle three for us today. God is concerned about abused people and unborn children. We see that through this passage. If you're experiencing abuse right now, please know that God is concerned about you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forsaken you. He's looking for you. He's seeking you out. He knows all about the abuse that's going on. He wants to help you through the process of recovery. So turn to him and seek his face, his comfort, his protection, his love, his provision, his healing. Maybe you're currently dealing with an unexpected pregnancy, and this pregnancy did uh, did not come as a surprise to God. He was aware that it was coming. He knows all the feelings that you're having about it, whether you're fearful or angry, whether you're anxious or depressed, and he's concerned about you and your baby. He knows the future of that baby and who they will become. And so this fourth next step is just to turn to God and trust him to protect me and or my unborn child. I know most of you today, but I don't know all of you intimately. I don't know what's going through, what's going on in your, your marriage right now. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. Those of you that are joining us online, most of you I, I, I know, again, not intimately. There's some of you that I don't know at all. But I really feel like this is a word from the Lord today, and he's saying to you, if you're, if you're dealing with abuse, he's there. And if you're scared because you're pregnant, he's there. He's concerned about you, and he's going to take care of you. And so I don't know who it's for today, but I know it's for somebody. The angel finds Hagar in the desert. Now, if Abram is still camped around Hebron, then Hagar has already traveled 70 miles southwest, which would have taken her a week by foot. Just walking. So she's already walked a week away from God's blessing. She's near a spring in the desert that's beside the road to Shore. And you see on the map here, Shore is like a region uh, that's off this direction on your map. 
And then Kadesh Barnea is kind of in the center there. Uh, it's in red text again. It's kind of hard to see, but she's following one of the many routes back to Egypt. That's how she's traveling here. And the angels, we see the angels' interaction with her. He asks her a couple of questions. But before we get to those questions, the angel addresses Hagar as the servant of Saul Rai. Again, this is pretty important. The angel does not call Hagar the wife of Abram. Warren Wearsby says this, God never accepted Hagar as Abram's wife. The angel of the Lord called her Sarah's maid. Later she was called this bondwoman and her son in chapter 21, verse 10, which we'll see down the line here. Not Abram, Abraham's wife and son. Why? Warren Wearsby says, because whatever is not of faith is sin. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. So the angel of the Lord asks her two questions that he already knew the answers to. Where, are you, where have you come from, Canaan? Where are you going, Egypt? And we see Hagar's response to one of the questions. I'm running away from my mistress, Saul Rai. She does not mention where she's going, but it's, like I said, most likely heading back to Egypt because of the direction she's going. The angel of the Lord encourages her to, to make a 180-degree turn. The second S word today is submit. So the angel was seeking her out so that he could encourage, encourage her to submit. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel tells Saul, or Hagar to go back to Sarai and submit to her. Can you imagine what she might have been thinking? What? Wait a minute, what are you saying? Are you, you're telling me to go back to the abusive mistress that I just fled from? And that was certainly what the angel of the Lord was telling her to do. But it was going to be different. The Lord was going to be with her and to protect her and her unborn child. And we know that that happened because uh, Ishmael was born and grows up and becomes the father of the Arab nations. And so God's plan for Hagar and her baby were going to be best. She had to trust God in a difficult situation. That plan included returning to Saul, Ryan, Abram's household. And then we see the promise for obedience and submission is that Hagar will have so many descendants that they will be too numerous to count. And while God's plan was for Abram's heir to come from he and Saul, Ryan, God was promising to bless Hagar's child also. And God's blessing on Abram because of his faith, which was counted to him as righteousness, was going to be imparted to he and Hagar's child as well. What a powerful commentary and testimony of Abram's faith. The angel of the Lord has some information for Hagar about her child. We see that in verses 11 and 12. The angel of the, of the Lord said, also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You, will, you, shall call, you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery, heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And so we see here the third S, which is share. Hagar gets a divine ultrasound here. Think about that. They didn't have that stuff back then. They had wives' tales, but they didn't have this. I mean, this is a divine ultrasound. The angel tells her that she's pregnant. That wasn't news to her. She already knew that. That's why she was being abused, and that's why she fled. But the angel tells her that, that the baby's going to be a boy. You're going to have a son, and this would be welcome news for Abram. He would have an heir. 
But the angel tells her the name of the baby, too. Now, I don't remember Judy and I having a hard time choosing baby names. We didn't find out uh, the sex of the first two boys, Wade and Seth. So we had a, a girl's name and a boy's name picked out, and we already knew it wasn't that difficult. And um, um, oh, I shouldn't say it so flippantly because I know some of you struggle with that. You're like, we've got to see what this kid looks like before. And so you have, like, multiple boys' names, multiple girls' names, and then when the baby comes, you're like, well, I, yeah, I guess he looks like a Leo. That's our grandson. She looks like a Kinsley, <clears throat> our granddaughter. So I know that some of you struggle with that, but uh, with Levi, with two boys already, we're like, we're just going to find out who, it, you know, if it's a boy or a girl. And of course, it was no doubt in the ultrasound. Like, yeah, it's another boy. And there we go. And so we already had his name ready to go. And like I said, some of you I know struggle and have multiple names, and you can't decide. And and uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> we just didn't have that problem. Now, how was it with you and your spouse when it came to naming your children? We have some friends who decided that uh, before they had started having children that uh, if, if the babies were boys, the husband would name them, and if the babies were girls, um, the wife would name them, and they had like three boys, and then they adopted a girl so that she got to name the girl. So um, uh, don't make those kind of you know, plans with your spouse, because you know, those things, that's difficult, right? I don't get to name my child. Hagar didn't have to worry about that, though. The angel of the Lord told her what name, what name to name her son. And the name was significant because it spoke to Hagar's situation. She was to name him Yishmael, which means God hears. God had heard of Hagar's misery. Principle four is this. God sees and hears our cries when we hurt. And this is the truth that every one of us can hold on to today. No matter what hurt you're currently experiencing, God sees and hears your cries. Your hurt may be emotional. It could be physical or relational. It may be in your family, at school or work, in your neighborhood, even at church. God's not distant. He's right there. And I just want to encourage you to claim, embrace, and acknowledge this truth today that he sees and hears our cries when we hurt. He is there for you. Believe that today. The angel of the Lord also tells Hagar about Ishmael's temperament. Now, I don't know about you, but he, he'll have a free spirit, extremely independent and quarrelsome. So this was this divine foreknowledge that, uh, he was, that she was getting. How many of us would have welcomed some divine foreknowledge about our child or children's temperament before they were born? No, thank you. He's like, no, I didn't want to know about it. I thought all of you would be like, that would be amazing, right? Oh, I think that would have been pretty cool. Because I would have bought every book available. I would have watched every video, talked to every expert on how to raise a child with that particular temperament. Right? I want to do it well. I'm somewhat of a perfectionist, so it you know, plays to my strength there. Even with that foreknowledge, though, Hagar and, and perhaps Abram were not able to change Ishmael's temperament or future. We know that the Arab nations came from Ishmael's line. The modern hostility between Israel and the Arab nations in the Middle East was foretold all the way back in Genesis during the time when Moses wrote this. He said, hey, Ishmael is going to be at, at war with his brothers. He's going to be at war. With, you know. it's, so imagine for a moment what our modern day would look like had Abram and Sarah uh, continued to follow God's plan instead of trying to help him out. <laughs> you like that, Gene, don't you? What would that look like? Wow. As the angel of the Lord finishes sharing with Hagar, she recognizes that she was talking to the Lord. She was seen. That's the last S word. Verses 13 and 14. She gave this name 
to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called, I'll try to pronounce it for you correctly, Beher Lachai Roi. And it's still there between Kadesh and Bered. <clears throat> so from her child's name, Hagar knows that the Lord has heard her. From her name for the Lord, Hagar recognizes that the Lord also sees her. She has, been seen, she has seen the back of the one who sees her. And the well was named to commemorate what had happened to Hagar. It means well of the living one who sees me. The well was between Kadesh and Bered. Now, Kadesh is referring to Kadesh Barnea, and Bered is an unknown. It's unknown in our modern day. We don't have any idea where that was at, but somewhere down around shore, that region of shore. We know that Hagar obeys the command of the angel of the Lord through the final two verses. Look at verses 15 and 16. So Hagar bore Abram's son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son uh, she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And so it's really quick is the conclusion there. It's Hagar had the baby. Abram named it Ishmael, named him Ishmael, and Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. Just to review today, do you need to confess to the Lord that you have tried to help him out and failed? Do you need to wait patiently for God's perfect plan to be fulfilled? Men, do you need to embrace your God-given role as spiritual head of your household and lead well? The song that that Logan, you know, oh, leave me. Uh, what a great song, just uh, talking about that particular point. Do you need to turn to God and trust him to protect you? You know, some of these things we need to do corporately as a body of believers. We need to confess that we tried to help God out and we failed. We need to uh, tell him and admit to him that we are going to wait patiently for his timing to take care of certain things that maybe we think should be done quicker, and we just need to trust him. As we close today, I just want to read this illustration to you. It's from Ethan Magnus. Kevin Martin was a minister at a massive church, but one of those churches where it got too burdensome. The administrative machine ate him up, and his world was blackened with depression. At one point, he was so depressed, he so crushed that he hastily wrote a letter to his board, immediately resigning from office, and then wrote a letter to his wife and his children saying he would never see them again. Kevin got in his Buick and drove up to Newfoundland, Canada, without anybody knowing where he was. He got a job as a logger. It was, a win and it was winter. He lived in a small metal trailer heated at night by a small metal heater. One night when it was 20 below, the heater stopped working. In a rage, Kevin went over to the heater, picked it up with both hands, and chucked it out the window, then realizing that was a stupid thing to do because it was 20 below. He throws himself on the ground and starts pounding the floor of this small metal trailer. He's pounding on the floor. He's yelling out to heaven. As he's pounding on the floor, he's yelling out to heaven, I hate you, I hate you, get out of my life. I'm done with this Christian game. It is over. He went into the fetal position. Kevin writes, I couldn't even cry. I was too exhausted to cry. As I lay there, I heard crying and heaving breaths, but they were not coming from me. Instead, in the bright darkness of faith, I heard Christ crying and heaving away on the cross, and then I knew the blood was for me, for the Kevin who was the abandoner, the reckless wanderer, the blasphemer of heaven. And then the words rose up all around me, Kevin, I'm with you, and I am for you, and you will get through this, I promise you. Kevin rose to his feet, got into his car, sped back home and reconciled with his family and his church. 
and then went on to lead that church in a healthy way. You see, he was trying to do this all on his own strength, perhaps. That's my guess. And he got overwhelmed. He wasn't seeking the face of God and God's plan for himself and the church. And he, and he just left. He just ran away. Did what Hagar did. He's like, I can't handle this anymore. I remember being in high school and living in Birmingham, Alabama with my parents. And we had just moved down there not, not long um, and uh, all of a sudden, one night, knock at the door comes, and it's a pastor friend of my dad's from Pennsylvania. And he got overwhelmed with ministry at the church. Didn't tell his wife or his children, hopped in his car and drove all the way to Birmingham, straight through. My dad was able to get him the help that he needed, and uh, he was restored. <laughs> And, and ministers, even to this day, in a church. He's, this is a support pastor now. But, you know, so many times we can get wrapped up and get overwhelmed and run away from what God wants to do. And we need to be careful not to do that. We need to be careful that we're always turning to God, seeking Him, His plan, in His time. And so as we I think about that, would you just bow your heads with me? And uh, let's just commit this to the Lord in prayer as the worship team comes uh, to lead us in a closing song. Lord, we come to you today. And uh, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, we just confess to you that we've uh, tried to help you in the past. And maybe we're trying to help you right now. And we're not doing a very good job of we failed, Lord God. And we confess that before you. Lord, would you just help us now to just seek your face and wait patiently upon you, Lord God, that your perfect plan will be accomplished in your perfect timing. And so, Lord, we just lift that up to you. Lord, I pray for the men here today that need to step up, that need to be the spiritual leaders of their household, and I pray that they would make that commitment to you today. Lord, I pray that you would protect those who are going through abuse and are afraid right now because they're expecting a child that was unexpected. We lift them up to you, Lord God, and ask that you would just comfort and strengthen them. So, Lord, would you do the work that only your Holy Spirit can do in each heart and mind? Lord, we just worship you now. Would you sing together with us?